0: If you will be making your way to Exodus 32, we cover a lot of this territory tonight. Very familiar passage. I come in and as I uh, talk with people, most of the time I'm left very encouraged by the things that people say, like tonight... One uh, couple, they, they, they say to me, uh, you know, we rushed back from where we were. We wanted to hear a good sermon tonight. It better be good, you know, and I appreciate that. And then Bill Berry says, you know what? He says they were serving liver and onions out there at St. Bernard's Villa, and, and I'm here instead of eating liver and onions, uh, which is a compliment from him. Uh, for me, it sounds like the meal of the devil. I... I, I You throw in some hominy with that, and you are in the utter place of godlessness, you know. But for him, that is a compliment to me, and so I'm grateful for that. And then James Peachy tells me, you know where I've been the last few days? In South Arkansas, putting up my headstone. The only thing missing is that last date. Thinking, that is so depressing, isn't it? Uh, But he got to sit there and stand there and see where he's going to be buried and what it's going to look like. And that's just a. I said, how did that feel? A A little bit strange. Um, anyway, so and that's what you get when you go around and you start interacting with people. You hear those weird things that people are going through and experiencing, but they, they give you some encouragement. I want to say this here, I, I, and I know it's early, but in November we're going to have an old-fashioned gospel meeting. And the month of October will begin 40 days of devotional and prayer as a church. You're going to be getting this little booklet where each day we go through the same devotional and prayer, which won't take more than five or six minutes of your day. Uh, but, But I want everybody praying and everybody reading and devotionalizing the same thing together as we prepare to have a meeting that we hope that there'll be some people that need to hear the gospel. But even if there are people, if there are not a lot of visitors, I've come to the conclusion that we need to hear the gospel again often as God's people. Just to hear the excitement and the adrenaline that comes from hearing that truth again. And so we're going to be hearing that because, you know, I, I don't know that I would call myself an evangelistic preacher, but having those efforts like that sometimes are really helpful. So we're in Exodus chapter 32 tonight, though. That's all future stuff, and I think the junior high is a devotional afterwards. And, and I, I know a lot of times uh, Michael will text, but I want you to know from the pulpit once in a while, they are doing some neat stuff uh, that never gets announced necessarily. They know it, and, and, but you need to know it sometimes. So just want you to know that junior high is doing some cool stuff tonight. Exodus chapter 32. You know, we, we talk a lot in the church about sin. How many of you are against it? Okay, all right. But how many of you struggle with doing it, right? Okay, so, so we're against sin, and we talk about sin, we preach about sin as well we should, and we urge people to know that they're sinful and that they need atonement. They need, they need forgiveness for their sin, and that forgiveness is available And we try to talk about it in a way that makes people know we're not talking from a vantage point of we've mastered this, we don't sin anymore, you need to repent, you need to get your life right. We want to say this uh, from the vantage point of a person who has uh, taken the cure for it, but still struggles with it. So we try not to come across as judgmental, and we don't want to tell, you know, judge people harshly for it, and yet we want them to know that they're in a dangerous position and that there's a cure available if they just would confess it, just would repent of it. And that's a hard thing to do, to talk about it and urge people to fix this problem without coming across as being judgmental. And So maybe what we need is a narrative, and so that's what we're going to talk about this particular story. We're going to go through some parts of it. Last week, we, ended, we left the people of Israel as they were dancing around and partying at the foot of Mount Sinai around a golden cap they'd created as an alternative to God. That's where we left them all week long. they have been dancing around. We just left them there. Tonight, we're going to see, as it's been read a moment ago, how God saw that. They saw this as a fix of their problem of no direction and boredom and uncertainty and they thought well now we're gonna we've got this God we're gonna dance around we're gonna figure out we've got we've got a direction for our lives as God's watching that he's in conversation this long conversation with Moses that took several days in the middle of the congregation and the conversation God says you won't believe what your people your people is what he says you won't believe what your people are doing right now you need to go down and see this in fact, you're going to go down and see this, and what I want to do is I want to obliterate all these people. I want, to, I want to destroy them all, and I want to start over with just you. You know what would have happened if he would have agreed to that? When we get together for VBS, it would be, Father Moses had many sons. That's what you'd be singing. He'd start over with Moses. We wouldn't even know Abraham. There'd be no thing about Abraham. There's no Abraham promise because it was all wiped out, and he's going to start all over with Moses. That's how significant this move was. That just doesn't have a ring to it, does it? Father... Moses, didn't Father Abraham sound better? You can't. That's the whole thing. And Moses thought the same thing. That just doesn't sound right, God. That song doesn't sound right. Don't do this. And God changes his mind, changes his plans for the people. Moses, of course, you know, does go down the mountain, but God has already told him what's happening. He's given him kind of like an evening news blurb to say, you know what they're doing? Here's what they're doing. They're dancing around. They've exchanged me for this silly little golden calf. What I want to look at is the words of God, and if you'll join me in chapter 32, verse 7, and I want you to see what sin does to us. In a very real sense, Israel hasn't sinned since they came out of Egypt. God rescues them. They've done some things to test God, but it's never called sin. God never reacts like he does here. God never responded to Israel before with their failure like he does now. And the only thing different from before and now is that the law has been given. God has now given them the law. They know what God wants. They've agreed to what God wants. They've heard his commands, except at least the, the Big Ten. They know what God has asked of them, and they've said, yes, we wholeheartedly agree to this. This is a wonderful thing, so we agree to it. Now that they've agreed to it and know the law, those things that they did before that were annoying and frustrating to God, now they're sinful and offensive to God. Paul says that himself. Before the law came, we didn't know what sin was. But then when the law came in, we discovered sin all over us. And that's what happens to these people. And here's how God describes it, verse 7. The Lord God said to Moses, go down for your people. It's the first time he changed the pronoun from your, my to your. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Before it was God brought them out. Now he's saying they're your people you brought out, Right? have corrupted themselves. I want you to see that first. What sin does to you is sin corrupts the self. You are sabotaging who you were created to be when you sin. I want you to realize that you are corrupting what is supposed to be great. You're sabotaging yourself. There's an image you were created in, and it's a vaulty one. Guys, the pattern that you were made from is incredibly significant. It is nothing less than the Creator Himself. And you have the capacity, God-given capacity, to be so great and do great things. And only God really knows what this means, to be made in His own image. But for sure, the description of God's expectations of the God imager in Scripture is how we were created to be. It's the owner's manual. This is the optimal design of my creation. This is how you're to be living and to be operated. And when we honor God's standard, we are honoring what we were created to be, and we were in tune with our Creator, and things are wonderful. But when we sin, we corrupt that image. And we're so much less than we can be. Those people dancing around, that calf they made the calf they made those people dancing around the calf they made out of stuff that was theirs look silly and childish and foolish they look ridiculous Because God made them for so much more than that. And when we sin, we are settling for so much less than what we could be. And when we tell people about sin, we need to put it in just those terms. Those people struggling to figure out who they are, and they want to change genders, or they want to change what is a morality for themselves, and they want to go out and do whatever they want, thinking, this is how I express my true inner self. No, it's not. You're corrupting yourself. You're being so much less than God made you to be. And when you start settling for that and thinking this is the real me, you're settling for corruption. You're settling for something that short circuits what you were intended to be. God's not punishing us and telling us what sin is. God is pointing the direction to what we were created to be. And when we tell someone what you're doing is sinning, We are not trying to tell them something as a poor judgment of themselves. What we're saying is, you are so much more than the decisions you're making right here. God says you are corrupting yourself. But he continues in verse 8. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And there's your definition of sin. They've turned aside from what God commanded. Sin is... Sin is when God has given you a standard, a specific instruction. Here's how you live to please your creator and to live optimally as a human. And you choose instead to do something else. Here's what God says from the owner's manual of one who created the human machine. I see what it says. I see what he wants me to do. But I'm going to go over here instead. It's turning aside from what God has told us. God gave them a command. For sure he gave them, you will have no other gods before me. You will not make a graven image, especially of a created world thing. You'll not take my name in vain. Those are the top three, right? Those are the first three. Those are the commands. And the moment comes when they, they, they're, they're, they're fixed with a choice. They come to a fork in the road, and here's what God's commanded. And they said, no, let's go do something else. They've turned aside. When we know... What God would have us do, and we choose an alternative instead, we are sinning. You're turning aside from what the Lord commanded, and you're corrupting the self. He gives the first time this is ever said in Scripture. Look at verse 9, the next one. God's piling this up, okay? He's piling it up to tell us why this is so bad. Look at verse 9. They've made for themselves, verse 8, they've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, verse 9, the Lord God said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it is a, what's the word? Stiff-necked. This is said a lot of God's people in the Old Testament, but this is number one. God coined the term, putting it to his people. You have any idea what stiff-necked means? How many of you raised stiff-necked children? Daryl, no, your children were born to a stiff neck daddy is what that was. That's what that is. Stiff-neck means this. You've got these animals that are so strong and so helpful in agriculture. You can put a couple of them together and really make some progress. And so you put them together under some reins. And by these reins, these, these ropes, you're able to harness this incredible energy into a specific, useful activity. You're able to rein all that power and do something really constructive with it. But then you have certain animals that no matter what you do, whether it's gentle or harsh or whatever, they will not go with the rein. They're stiff-necked. Whatever you tell me, I ain't doing it. you got animals like that, and there are people like this. God tries to take the human animal, I say that in the highest way, he tries to take the human animal and harness our incredible, God-given ability to image him and channel us in the right direction to do great things to image him and honor him. And when he gives us those restraints and when he gives us this harness that says, I want to I put you in this direction and I want to point you here and I want to direct you in this way and I want to show you exactly the best way for you, and you bolt. I ain't going to do it, you stiff-necked person. God says these are stiff-necked people. It's like a powerful car that you can't trust its steering. You have all the energy and the horsepower you want, all the speed that you want, but you can't trust the steering. It's going to go wherever it wants to go. You're going to get in that driver's seat and take off? It's stiff-necked. If it cannot be directed, it's useless. God is trying to direct his creation into its optimal performance. And they're stiff necked. Sin is when God's trying to rein you in and you refuse. They're corrupting the self. They're not going in the way God commanded. They're stiff necked. Moses then takes over. You know, we'll, we'll talk about this some. Moses argues with God and makes a compelling argument that changes God's mind. We're not going to get to that tonight, but I want you to go down to verse 15 where Moses comes down the mountain with the two tablets. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. Then in verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, when he tries to do some investigative reporting and try to figure out what happened, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought about such great? Sin. He just comes out and says sin. I love that. He says this again in verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people. Now he's not talking to Aaron. He's talking to the people. You have sinned a great sin. We're not just talking about a sin. You sinned a great sin. And so verse 31, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. He calls it what it is, sin, three times. And sin means missing the mark. It means there's a target and you're more than capable of hitting the target. God never asks anything of his people that they're not capable of hitting the target. He sets it up for them and says, you can do this, but they choose to fall short, go over, or go for another target altogether. Sin means you've fallen short of the mark. You've missed the mark that God set up. And there's one other word he uses. Once you look at verse 25 back up, Moses saw the people had broken loose. And there's another description of sin. Broken loose. I'm just piling up all the descriptions of sin in this story. He describes the same act all these different ways. And broken loose means you refuse to live within the restraints that you were given. The calf was a way for them to get loose from God's restraints. Here, if they take God, they've got all these commandments that restrain them, that put boundaries and limits on them. And we think, as as our class was so excellent this morning, we think if we remove the limits, that's real freedom. That's not true. It's when you live within the right limits that you have the most freedom. And so God knows that, and he gives us restraints. That's what his law is. By the way, that's what every law is. Can you go as fast as you want to on the highway of Southwest right out here, Southwest Drive? You may know what the speed limit is. I really don't. What is it? 50? It's 50. It's a restraint. You can only go this high. It's a restraint. What's a stop sign? It's a restraint. You must stop here. You don't steal. What is that? It's a restraint. Law is to restrain people. You cannot have true total freedom without total anarchy. And so, in order to have real freedom, you've got to have restraints. But God says, you know what? You've broken loose. I gave you my restraints. And what you did was, well, we don't really like them. Let's create a golden calf because out with God, in with a calf means out with the rules, in with whatever you want to do. And we think that's real freedom. Do you want to live in a country where you take out all the restraints? It will look ugly. It won't be long before you're saying, well, you can't do that. Well, why not? We got total freedom. And God says, you just want to break loose. You just want to not be restrained at all. Listen to this proverb. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off all restraint. Blessed is the man who keeps the law. If there's no restraint given by God, if there's no direction, there's no revelation, the people will perish and they'll just do whatever they want. And it it is not what you think it is. Breaking loose is not the beautiful thing that often we as kids and teenagers think it's going to be. That's what sin does to us. And when God tells us not to sin, he is not trying to spoil your fun. He's trying to optimize your ability to reach the potential he created in you that came straight from him. Now notice what it does to God. First of all, notice verse 7. We're going to go back and look at this again. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God disowns us. Sin causes God to disown us. He all of a sudden switches from my people who I let out of Egypt, and he says, they're yours. Husbands and wives in here, when your kid does something good, whose kid is that one? Is your daughter. Whose kid? It's, it's Wesley's, right? When his kids did something good, it's Wesley's. And when the kid did something bad, it's Reese's, right? Yeah, that's your kid. Right? That's what we say. We kind of tease each other. We don't. We don't disown our kids. And God doesn't disown his own people either. But you know what? It makes him so angry. And for a time, he did. Time he backed away and said, They're free. They're, they're free of any covenant. You're going to see in a moment how Moses demonstrates that the covenant's no longer applicable to them. God's wrath is triggered. You're going to notice this that He's ready to back up and destroy this whole people. He is going to obliterate this people for this sin they've done. I want you to know your sin is more serious than you can imagine it being. It has a worse effect upon God than you ever dreamed it did. Now, we now know Jesus, we now have a constant flow of forgiveness. But don't let that lull you into a spiritual stupor that makes you think your sin ain't no big deal. Because it is. It still hurts the heart of God. And while he won't disown you because of Jesus, it does hurt the heart of God. And those who are not in Christ have been disowned by their God. Yes, he made them, and yes, he loves them, but they are not his children in the same sense we are. And here's the deal. We long for everybody to have that relationship so that they can be free from the consequences of sin. Second thing is this graphic image, verse 19. We often think that Moses was out of control and he, in a rage, threw the stones and they broke. I don't think that's what happened. He was angry. Did he already know what they had done? Did he already know? Yes, God had already told him. So this was not like he was actually, though. It's, it's, it's one thing to know something. It's another thing to see it being happening. So he comes down there. I can't believe these people are dancing around this calf and eating and drinking and rising up to play. I can't believe they're doing this. But this stone, and this is interesting. There's a couple details that, that probably you didn't know. First of all, God wrote him with his own hand. You knew that. But he wrote on him front and back. He wasted no space. And there's, there are these two tablets And Moses, in a rage, threw them and broke them. It's a very graphic image that would play in these people's minds forever to see him take these two stones written in God's handwriting and he throws them to the ground and breaks them. But it's not out of total rage. It's because they have just acted in such a way that breaks the covenant. The covenant is broken. And I want you to see that, and I want you to feel the intensity that that must be. And so he throws these tablets and say, forget it. What the, the deal God made you, 40 days later, it's null and void because of your behavior. You've just disqualified yourself from the covenant. Now, he's going to go back up, and he's going to get another copy, and he's going to renew it, and he's going to make atonement. But for this moment right here, they are now outside of the covenant of God. The stone tablets are broken. Very graphic, very picturesque, vivid, vivid image. Third thing, I want you to notice what Moses does here. Look at verse 30. Or sorry, sorry, verse 26. When Moses saw, verse 25, that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? This is where our song came from. You ever heard this song? Tell me whose side are you living on? I'm living. Yeah, okay. So who is on the Lord's side? Is there anybody still left who didn't do it? You see, we think that all the Israelites danced around the calf. That's not true. It's not true. There's a lot of them that didn't. And so Moses comes to there and says, who is on the Lord's side? Who, who stood for God and still stands for God? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. That's his own clan and tribe. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you. Go to and from the gate to gate throughout the camp, each of you. Kill his brother, his companion, and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses says, Today we ordain you for service to the Lord. So the Levites got their special service from this expression of following God. Can I tell you this? Sin not only causes God to disown you and breaks the covenant, but it shatters the fellowship of the church. They're called a congregation a lot out there in the wilderness. Sin separates those within the church when it's not repented of. Even today it does this. This is an incredibly uh, emotional thing, the Levites to take swords and go throughout the camp and kill their own fellow family members and people of Israel. They chose God instead of their own family kin. They're choosing faith over blood. It's a tough call. I want you to see what, Moses, what, what Jesus says about this same thing. In this particular passage from Matthew chapter 12, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and the brothers who stood outside wanting to speak to him, someone told him, your, told him, Your brother and your mother's mother and brothers standing outside wanting to speak to you. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? It's whoever does the. He says there's a higher thing than blood relationship. We are admonished to view our spiritual connection to one another through the blood of Christ as even more important and stronger than the blood that runs through our veins. And in fact, there are times, aren't there? Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword, and I'm going to divide father from mother and husband and wife. I'm going to divide people over matters of faith because faith is more important than blood. And that's what the Levites are saying. And I'm going to tell you this. 1 Corinthians 5, we remember this story, this man sleeping with his father's wife, right? Doing something immoral. We have to be willing to take this guy and say, you're no longer part of the family. You're no longer part of the family. That's That's a hard call. In our particular society right now, I think there's an awful lot of us that no matter what somebody's doing, we could not stand for this. We would look at this and say to the elders, "Are you correct? there's no way I'll ever treat somebody like that as an outsider. Scripture says so. It's a hard one, isn't it? That's what Moses was saying to the Levites. And what sin did was those who had sinned are no longer one with those who didn't sin. It destroyed that fellowship. It requires atonement. I want you to look at verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin. This is prophetic. This is one of those things that makes Moses a prophet. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps I can. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. First mention ever that God's keeping a record called a book the book of revelation that book's going to be open and every name that's in it is going to be allowed into heaven every name that's not is going to be thrown into the lake of fire this book is being kept and this is the first mention of it moses speaks of it and he says if you can't forgive them all trade places notice what god says lord said to moses whoever has sinned against me the one who sins That's the one I'll blot out of my book. Each person has to speak for themselves. No one else can speak for anybody else. No one else can stand for somebody else. That's true to a point. But the only way we have atonement is that somebody did. Isn't that right? Now the thing is, Moses is too sinful to be able to do this. It's a wonderful thing for a human being to love someone that much to say, God, if they're not going to make it, I'll switch places. They can have my spot and I'll take theirs. But you're not sinless enough to make such an arrangement. So God says, Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, him, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. My angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. There is atonement that has to be made for sin. When sin is committed, atonement has to come from somewhere. God and his righteousness cannot just simply casually overlook it. Sin hurts you. They did have to pay. They paid when these Levites went through and sorted some people. They paid in the last verse of the chapter when the Lord sends this plague and some of them die from it. There is pain in this. They had to ground up, they ground up this golden calf, they put it in water and they make the people drink it. There's something weird about that. Numbers has something about this, a woman suspected of an adultery. You'd take the the dust from the floor of the temple or the tabernacle and you'd put it in water and you'd stir it and you'd make her drink it, and if she was guilty, it would be it would show and if she wasn't it would show. It's a weird thing. I think by doing this, the people who were really guilty suffered and the people who weren't were okay sin does hurt you and there's one last thing I want you to see before we quit it's this weird word in verse 25 the Lord had spoken and when Moses had seen that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies that's not how the NIV puts it then put, I puts it as, as it made them a laughing stock to the nations. Your sin, when you commit it, causes people to misunderstand God. When you act this way, when they acted so much less, they corrupted themselves and all their corrupted themselves and did all those things, but dancing around that calf, when they did that, it made the other nations laugh. It made the other nations laugh think well you're just like us it made the other nations misunderstand about the nature of the God they serve and we might want to say well I don't care what other people think you need to because we are God's representatives and ambassadors even if you don't know it and even if you don't feel it sin causes untold harm It damages you. It makes you so much less than you could be, and you will pay the cost for it. And the beautiful thing about this, we're going to get to next week, is that Moses makes this argument that appeals to God, and he doesn't obliterate them, and he comes up with another plan. And that plan is Jesus. It's because of Jesus that they don't die here. Every sin ever committed is only forgiven because of Jesus. That goes back in time, that goes forward in time, and that goes to right now. This is a prediction of Jesus right here. Every sin has to be atoned for. And the beautiful thing about this is God knew the mess we'd create. He came up with atonement before we even lived to sin. He came up with this plan already. But even though you don't face the ultimate consequences of your sin because of Jesus, other punishment for sin still exists. You still suffer for your sin. It's not all erased. Maybe sometimes when you're talking to people about the sin of their lives, you can go to a narrative like this one and show them this is what sin does to you, whether you really see it or not. Maybe you can help them see it in a way that's not so indicting to them. Because the truth is, sin's worse than we ever could explain to people. Sin's worse than we think it is. If, he, if it wasn't, I don't think Jesus would have to pay that ultimate price like he did. And there's so many things it does that often we don't realize. I'm telling you, sin is a big deal. And even though we don't have to pay for it, ultimately, the highest consequence has already been taken care of by the blood of Jesus. That is true. Christians still care about eliminating sin from their lives. Or we should. Never get flippant. Never get casual it's way too expensive, it's way too costly to God and to you, to your family and the people who know you. Let's be a people who take our sin seriously, even though we're already forgiven. Take our sin seriously and eliminate it from our lives. There's anyone here however who has never entrusted their sin to Christ. They've never believed in Christ and let him take their stand, his stand for you in the area of sin. I take away everything I just said. You're in deep trouble. You're still separated from God. You're not his child. He is despised. He's angered by you and his wrath is coming on you. Unless unless you choose to believe in Jesus. And tonight you have another opportunity you do every single day of your life as long as you have breath. But tonight, here's a formal opportunity. If you need to confess your sin and name the name of your Savior, Jesus, from your lips and be immersed, this is a great occasion for us to do it. Right? You get, we'll even take a day off tomorrow and celebrate and party with you. Right? It's Labor Day. But if you've done that, there is a way to continue living in sin with disregard and unconcern about what God's done for you. Even post-baptismal sin can separate you from God if you let it. If there's anyone who needs to repent of their sin, that's available tonight too. Whatever you do, make sure you leave here tonight sinless. Make sure you leave here tonight sinless. If we can help you with that, we'll do so as we stand and as we sing.